I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Mark chapter 7. This uh, is the story of the uh, Syrophoenician woman who receives a healing deliverance for her uh, daughter. Uh, I usually teach this from Matthew chapter 15. Matthew gives us a little bit more uh, detailed information about this, uh, the story and the events, and he breaks it down a little bit further in, in uh, smaller pieces, I should say, more detail than, um, than Mark does. But there are a couple of things about this from Mark's uh, gospel, Mark's account, that uh, that I really want you to see. I don't remember. I could be wrong on this, but I don't remember ever having taught this from Mark chapter 7. I'm always going to Matthew chapter 15. And uh, if Matthew 15 was the only reason for uh, or the, the best um, description, account of this uh, this healing incident, then there would be no reason for the Holy Ghost to give it to Mark. So... I'm going to start in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Here's the story of the Syrophoenician woman who receives healing for her daughter. And from thence, he, Jesus, went, arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek or literate Gentile, a Syrophoenician by nation, And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet or appropriate or right to take the children's bread and to cast it unto dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. Three things I want you to see about this story. Three things stand out from Mark's account of this story. First of all, notice that she was a Gentile. It says specifically that she was a Syrophoenician. Now, Matthew's account just says a certain woman came to him in the coast of Tyre and Sidon. It doesn't describe her. This is the only description we have of the woman and who she is. But the fact that she's called a Syrophoenician means that she's a product of the kingdoms of Syria and Phoenicia. Those two kingdoms... One had conquered the other, and uh, in that process had sort of merged together, and the people accepted the new kingdom, the new new rule, I should say, over them. And as a result, it became kind of an acquisition or a merger between the Syrians and the Phoenicians. I think the significance of this is there is no way in the world that you could identify that this woman was anything close to a child of Abraham. I mean, it's got her covered in every terror, every, every direction possible. There's no way that the blessings of Abraham belong to her. Well, what's she doing coming to Jesus? I guess we would have to assume that she's heard of Jesus, heard of Jesus' ability to heal, because she knows what she's coming for. She comes and falls, falls down at his feet. And he says, and says to him, says to Jesus, asked Jesus, that he would cast the devil out of, the unclean spirit, out of her daughter. But notice what Jesus said. Now, Matthew gives us a little bit more detail, as I said before. Matthew said that the first thing that he answered was, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that's brought out by the, the things that we just made mention of, the fact that she was a Syrophoenician, a Gentile and Syrophoenician. So Jesus is clear about what his mission is. Jesus' mission was to go to the Jews first. And then the Gentiles would trust on his name. But really, the Gentiles, for the most part, were only ministered to by Jesus in the latter part of his ministry, personally, 
And the prophecies about the Gentiles trusting in his name is really after the Jews reject him and have him crucified. So he knows who he's sent to. But there's something about this woman. This woman recognizes that if Jesus is within reach, she can get what she wants. It's almost as if, and I hesitate to say it this way before I prove it from the rest of the scripture later on, but it's almost as if she knows Jesus can't say no. And folks, I want you to understand something. Your Savior is the Jesus that cannot say no. So Jesus says, let the, chil- let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, the second thing I want you to see about this, this story, is that it identifies that healing and deliverance belongs to the children of God. Now, where Jesus said, it's not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. What does he, what is he talking about when he says children's bread? Hey, we know what she came for. She came for deliverance for her daughter, or we might say in a general sense, healing. Right? I mean, healing in her case is deliverance from this unclean spirit. That's not true in every case, but it's certainly true in her case from the details that the story gives us. So we know what she's coming for. She's coming for healing, specifically her daughter to be delivered from an unclean spirit, the presence of an unclean spirit. And Jesus says regarding what she's coming for, he uses the example, it's not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, children's bread has to be uh, an identification. Bread is always used as an illustration or a type of provision. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone. Well, what does he mean, bread? He's using bread there as a type of food. He's using the word bread to generally mean food. He's saying man, the children of God, the people of God, don't live just by natural food, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, he's saying the same thing that food is to the natural body, the way that food sustains and provides for the natural body, the Word of God provides for and sustains you spiritually. Food is the only thing that feeds the natural body, the physical body. The Word is the only thing that can feed your spirit. So he's using the word food there, or the word bread, excuse me, to identify food or provision, that which the body needs. So in the same way where he uses the term children's bread, He's talking about that provision which belongs to the children. Now, whose children does he mean? He's got to be talking about God's children. So what I want you to understand is Jesus very clearly says that healing belongs to the people of God. Now, the modern-day church seems to have the idea, by and large, and I hope you don't fall into this category, But the modern-day church, by and large, seems to fall into the category of you've got to talk God into doing something about healing you. You've got to convince him in some way or another. Now, what this story is showing us is that Jesus identifies that healing and or deliverance belongs to the people of God, and the only reason it doesn't belong to her is because she's not in that category. Now, the only people of God there was at the time Jesus said this was Israel. Nobody could be born again because Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross. The criteria for being born again is to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Well, he hadn't yet been raised from the dead at the time that Mark chapter 7 takes place. So nobody could be saved in the sense that we know of being born again. So the only people of God there were were those who were part of the covenant that God made with Abraham several thousand years prior to this point in time. His covenant people, Israel, 
So that's the only way that we could identify children in this context. Healing is the children's bread, meaning healing belongs to Israel. Why? Because he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's who he was originally sent to. It was only after Israel rejected him that he went to the Gentiles and received them as well. In other words, the, Gen- the, uh, the Jews got first choice at Jesus. They got the first opportunity at Jesus. But they rejected him. Well, what about children now? What about the children of God now? The children of God are not Israel. Israel is without covenant. I know this upsets some people when I say this, but Israel is without covenant toward God. The only covenant that Israel ever had was uh, was Abraham's covenant. And Jesus fulfilled Abraham's covenant, which means the only way you can have access to Abraham's covenant today, meaning Israel, is through Jesus. Well, if they reject Jesus, they're without covenant toward God. Now, people get upset about that. Some people do, at least. And they say, oh, but Pastor Mike, Paul said by the Holy Ghost that all of Israel will be saved. Yeah, he did. But most of Israel comes into salvation through the tribulation. The 144,000 evangelists that start in the beginning of the tribulation period and minister for those seven years, except for the last day. Or the last, I'm sorry, except for the last half. They, they minister for about four years of the tribulation period. The ones they get saved are primarily a Jewish company. Calls it a mixed multitude, but they're all operating according to Jewish forms of worship when you finally see them in heaven. So, yeah, I agree with the Bible. All Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean nobody, no Jew will go to hell. It means Israel will be reaped into the family of God by their own choice. They will finally come to the place where they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But most of that takes place during the tribulation period after the church is already gone. So the only covenant Israel has, the only covenant there is with God, period, for anybody is through Jesus. God doesn't have plan A, plan B, and plan C. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, the way is plan A, the truth is plan B, and the life is plan C. He is all of God's plans. It's him and only him. So where he says healing is the children's bread, who does that mean it belongs to now? Who does the provision for the physical body belong to now? Those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. You know, I I, uh, I have to tell you something, folks. I'm impressed that it would do us a world of good if I just stand here all night and say healing belongs to you. Because sooner or later, people take advantage of what they know belongs to them. Most people do anyway. Well, why don't the children of God, why don't those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, why don't people that are saved, those are interchangeable terms in uh, as far as I'm concerned, why don't people that are saved take advantage of what belongs to them? Because they're not convinced it belongs to them. It's one thing to accept mentally that something belongs to you, and it's another thing to know that it's yours. It's, an, it's one thing to agree with, yeah, well, the Bible says it's mine, so it must be mine, but... I know that's not the case in my body. I know that's not what the doctor says. And so I guess God will just have to all work that out. And again, people fall into this thing, whatever God wants to happen will be the way that it is. Well, folks, if that was the case, everybody would get saved because that's what God wants to happen. That's why he sent Jesus. But that's certainly not the case, is it? 
So it must not be up to just God and what he wants. Is it? No, it's up to you. It's up to the individual. You've got to lay claim to the things that belong to you. That's what's so amazing about this woman. She's a Gentile. We have no reason to think that she knows anything about Abraham, anything about the blessings of Abraham, anything about the covenant God made with Abraham, anything other than just knowing that, that there are a people called Jews or Israelites. We have no reason to conclude that she knows anything about God, yet she seems to know She seems to be convinced that if I can just get close enough to Jesus, he can't say no. That's more than most saved people accept to be true. Well, what does she do? Now she's faced with a problem because Jesus basically said, clearly said, the healing you're looking for, the deliverance you want for your daughter doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Israel. It doesn't belong to you. But she answers knowing. And again, I I hesitate to say knowing because I I can't read her mind. I can't get into her her thought process. But boy, from her actions, she seems to know something. From her actions, she doesn't stop. She doesn't, she doesn't say, well, wait a minute, Jesus. I've got good friends that are Jews. I'll give money to the temple if you want me to. Is there some good work I can do? I'll convert. Tell me what I have to do. No, she answers and says, yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs that fall. Now, here's the third thing I want you to see about this. The third thing I want you to see about this story is Jesus answers her. Notice what he says. Matthew, uh, Matthew's account says Jesus answered her and said, oh, daughter, great is your faith. Woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you uh, even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that hour. But notice what Mark says. Mark says Jesus answers and says to her, for this saying. For this saying, go thy way. The devil has gone out of your daughter. I want to, The third thing I want you to see is she got what she wanted because of what she said. What does this story tell us? The story shows us that healing is the children's bread. The story shows us that she knew that if that healing was within her reach, deliverance for her daughter was in her was in her within her reach if she could just get to Jesus. And third, she knew that what she said controlled everything. Now, folks, I would submit to you that those same three principles work for everybody today. Because if you don't know healing belongs to you, and that is the number one hindrance in the body of Christ from people receiving their healing. They don't know healing belongs to us. That's why the big question is healing God's will for everybody. Well, Pastor Mike, we know that God can heal. Well, I guess that's good to know. But that really doesn't help you if you stop there. We know God can heal. But it's not always his will to heal everyone. How do we know? Well, you know, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Well, what was that? Paul said it was persecution. Well, no, Pastor Mike, it was some eye disease. Paul said it was persecution. Yeah, but but church history tells us that it was some terrible disease and eye problems and and stuff like that. Because even Paul said, you see with what large letters I've had to write. He didn't say that at all. He's not talking about the size of the letters. He's talking about the length of the book. 
So Paul said it was persecution. Well, you know, Paul left somebody sick somewhere. Well, who was that? I don't know. Well, where is it in the Bible? I don't know. But Paul left somebody sick somewhere. Yeah, that's right. And you know why he said he was sick? He said he was sick because he overworked himself. Which means we've got a responsibility in our own health. Yet the Bible says that God had mercy on him and and brought him back to health. By the way, his name was Epaphroditus. So you get people with little bits and pieces of information. And they think they know God because of the little bit that they have heard. What made the difference with this woman? What was it that caused her to know that if I can just get close enough to Jesus, I'm not a Jew. I'm not even going to be, pretend to be a Jew. I'm not going to talk about Abraham. I'm not going to say how much I, even though I'm a Gentile, I really like Abraham. I'm not going to go into any of that kind of stuff that people try to t- work and manipulate God with today. She just simply had faith that if she could get to Jesus, her healing was within reach. Why is it so hard for people to take that attitude now? But you can't find one in a hundred Christians that take that attitude now. How come? Well, you know, there's this dear saint of God that died of cancer. And if God was going to heal anybody, he would have healed her. So that's what we're going to base God on. You're really going to base what you can receive from God on whether or not you're going to base what you believe you can receive from God on what somebody else failed to receive? Seriously? Not me, man. Because the Bible doesn't say sister so-and-so will never fail. But the Bible says the word of God will never fail. So I'm going to base what I believe on the word. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That means belief in God's word comes by hearing God's word. But faith in everything comes by hearing. Faith in the wrong things come by hearing. You hear over and over again that healing's been done away with, that healing passed away with the last apostle along with signs and wonders and all that stuff. And the more you hear it, the more you'll believe it. Now you're believing a lie, but it doesn't matter. You're still believing it. You can be strong in faith in something that's not true. And a lot of the church is. That's why Jesus said, take heed what you hear. The parable that he gave, that he told us about the sower sowing the word, he said the key to understanding this parable will make you understand every other thing that he ever said. And it comes down to hearing and believing. So what did he say? He said, take heed what you hear. Take heed what you hear. You know, there's going to be a lot of surprise people when we get to heaven. Because a lot of people that are taking the attitude and are quick to say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord some questions. I'm going to ask him why he let this happen to me. When they get to heaven, they're not even going to get a chance to ask. Because their eyes will be open and they'll see the reason that these things happened was because they listened to the wrong things and believed the wrong things and failed to take advantage of what Jesus purchased for us. There's going to be a lot of surprised people and a lot of ashamed people. Jesus said healing belonged to the children of God. What do you say? She said, I'll just take a crumb that falls from the table. And Jesus answered again and said unto her in verse 29, I love this, 
Jesus said unto her, For this saying, go your way. The devil has gone out of your daughter. As I said, Matthew said, Jesus answered, Woman, great is your faith. Here it just says, For your saying, you get your answer. Well, faith is always identified by what we say, isn't it? Faith is believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. So they're one and the same thing, but I love the way that Mark says it. For this saying, go your way. In other words, the answer came because of what you said. Guess what? Yours does too. The answer came because of what she said. What if she had started debating with Jesus after he talked about the children's bread? What if she had given up right there? That would have been a perfect opportunity for her to do like many other Christians and say, well, I tried. God knows I tried. I don't know why he's letting this happen to me. He knows I love him. I just don't understand. Been the perfect place for her to give up, wouldn't it? Matthew says that the first time she spoke to Jesus, he didn't even answer. She wouldn't give up. What was it about this woman that made her not give up? She knew Jesus wouldn't say no. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 30, verse 29, where he says, For this saying, go your way. For this saying, go your way. Let me ask you a question. What can God say no to you about? She needs the mercy of God. Let me remind you of a couple of scriptures. Turn back with me to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, let me read verses 8 and 9 to you. It says, the Lord is gracious. That word gracious means disposed to show favors. That means God's makeup is to do favorable things to people. Now, it's interesting that the psalmist, who is inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us what God's character and his nature is about, does not say, God gets you when you mess up. As a matter of fact, this is just the opposite of God getting you for messing up. It says the Lord is gracious. The Lord is disposed to show favors. God is made up to do good things for you. The Syrophoenician woman seemed to think that. She seems to be operating on that principle, that understanding at least. Because she won't get turned away. No matter what, she won't let it go. She, I don't even know how she gets in the house where Jesus is. She must be a pushy woman. Because Jesus is trying to get away from everybody. So where does he go to get away from everybody? He goes where nobody's expecting him to be, and he gets behind closed doors. And she comes in and falls down at his feet. I do not know how she got through the ushers at the door. But she did. Because she seems to know something about Jesus that many people haven't found out. That the Lord is gracious. He's disposed to show favors. He's disposed to do good things. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. And most Christians seem to read this. The Lord is gracious to some. And he shows compassion every now and then. But just not to me because I've messed up so much. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Folks, if you're full of something, that means there's no room for anything else. 
That means if the Lord is full of compassion, like the Bible says he is, there's no room for him being mad at you. If he's full of compassion, that means there's no place for him to say no. That is what it means, isn't it? Am I reading something into this? The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Full of compassion. That doesn't sound to me like what I learned in church growing up. When you pray, sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. That taught me I've got a one out of three chance. I don't see that here. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. The Bible says the promises of God are yes and amen, not no and wait. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger. I found that to be a real positive thing in my experience. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. What makes God angry? Well, let's look at Jesus. When did Jesus get angry? Jesus got angry when the money changers were operating in the temple. They turned the temple of God into the house of, uh, into a merchandising operation instead of a house of prayer. Jesus got angry with the, with the, the disciples for not believing. And he got angry with the Jews for trying to turn the disciples from believing in him. When else did Jesus get angry? Listen, with all the stuff people did and said and, and came against him and the way that the Jews tried to kill him on many occasions and took up stones to stone him and stuff like that, three times in a three-year ministry, that looks pretty good to me. Slow to anger and of great mercy. The word mercy here is the word kindness. The word compassion is the word we think of as mercy. The Lord is gracious. He's disposed to show favor and full of compassion, full of mercy. Slow to anger and of great kindness. Great kindness. If only he was kind enough to heal the sick. But I guess that's the limit of his kindness. He's kind right up to the point where you need some physical help. He's full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He's got great kindness. He's slow to anger. But if you need any help down here on the earth, uh, just forget that. Now, I know how stupid that sounds, folks, but that's the way most of the church world operates. They never say it. But that seems to be what they believe because of what they act like. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Notice it says the Lord is good to all. Not some, not a few lucky ones. The Lord is good to all. Now, does all mean you? It's a real question. Because even though we know all is supposed to mean us, so many times we'll take the attitude or take the position that, well, all means everybody except me. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all of his works. His tender mercies are over all of his works. Let me remind you of a scripture. There's uh, in uh, Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 14, I believe it is. 
Yeah, this is when Solomon dedicated the temple. Here's part of Solomon's declaration. It's not even his prayer. He just says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in the heaven, nor in the earth, which keepest covenant and showeth mercy unto thy servants that walk before thee with all their hearts. The Bible says God keeps covenant with his people up to a thousand generations. This woman's not even part of the covenant. She got the blessing. Why? Because his tender mercies are over all of his works. Because Jesus can't say no. Why? Because the Lord is good to all. You can't find anybody that Jesus in his three years of ministry here on the earth, which was designed to show us what God's like. Everything Jesus did here on the earth, he said, is to reveal the Father to us. So therefore, everything we see in Jesus is the way we're supposed to believe God is. And you can't find one time, one place, under any circumstances where Jesus ever turned away anybody that came to him to receive. Not one. Now, that does not mean that Jesus interrupted people's lives and their events and all the things they had going on and forced the blessing of God upon them. But everybody that came to him got their answer. Everybody. This woman did, and she didn't even belong to her. She got what she came for. Why? Because the Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all of his works. If he would do that to somebody or for somebody that doesn't even, that isn't even a part of the covenant that God had with his people at that time, would he not do at least as much for his children now who he lives in? I feel like I'm teaching a Sunday school kindergarten lesson. I know this is simple. And it should be something that we have so ingrained and so settled in our hearts that it's not an even issue. But this is, folks, trust me, when it comes to ministering healing, this is the issue. Will God do it for me? Will he be good to me? Oh, I've cried. I've poured out my heart. I've done it. This woman got what she wanted because of one thing she said. For this saying, go your way, the devil has gone out of your daughter. Don't tell me it's hard to get something from God. One thing she said got her her answer. One thing. Now, you can't tell me it's because there was something special about her. You can't tell me it's because she knew the word better than anybody else. Because she didn't. You can't tell me it's because she's been confessing, I believe I receive, I believe I receive, I believe I receive my healing. Nope. You can't tell me it's because she's lived a good life. We have no reason to believe so. You can't tell me it's because she loves God more than anybody else around. She's not even worshiping God according to his plan for that time. All the things that we try to do to get God to be willing to do for us. She hadn't done a one of them. Not one. She got what she came for because of one thing that she said. That is, if the Bible story, the Bible account is accurate. Because Mark tells us by the Holy Ghost that Jesus said, for this saying, 
In other words, because you said this, go your way. The devil's gone out of your dollar. If one thing said by somebody unsaved could get her the answer that she's looking for, would we not expect at least the same results for somebody that has got the Spirit of God living in them? Folks, if it doesn't work that way, then God's unfair. And if God's unfair, it means the Bible's untrue. I mean, let's just face facts. It's either true or it's a lie. This stuff's either right and it works or we're wasting our time. If this stuff is not true, if the Bible's not true, we'd be better off going home trying to find Bonanza reruns on TV. Turn with me over to uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. There's um, there's something that's uh, really impacted me here of late, within the last six or eight months, something like that. I um, when I was working for Brother Hagen, um, well, maybe just before that, just before I left to go to. Tulsa to Bible School, I heard of a man named Smith Wigglesworth. And I'm sure I heard it from somebody's preaching, maybe Brother Hagin's preaching or something. But the more I got around Brother Hagin, the more I heard him talk about Wigglesworth, and I realized, came to, to, to realize, that he read, Brother Hagin read a lot of uh, Wigglesworth's sermons that had been in, put in print, and there's a great big old thick book of his sermons that had been compiled by, uh, I think, family members. But anyway... Um, it's been changed. It's been reprinted and, and so forth and changed and other people have put their names on it and stuff. But the, but the, uh, the one that I'm talking about was put out by the family and, um, uh, grand, grandson, granddaughter, somebody like that. And, um, and I saw brother Hagen had that at his home. He had that on his bedside table. I mean, this book will choke a mule. It's huge. And brother Hagen would, uh, I heard him refer at uh, times, during uh, during his sermons and stuff, he said, I always read something about healing before I go to bed every night. Well, when Brother Hagin would go out of town on things that weren't crusades, sometimes Beth and I, he and Mom would ask us to stay at the house so that there's somebody there and, and stuff like that. So we would. And so we were the first time we were ever staying over the house while they were gone, uh, I went into the bedroom and I'm looking at the bed and I'm thinking, I'm going to sleep there tonight. Oh my God, is this okay? You know? Is this holy ground? Is this something? Maybe I should take the guest bedroom or something like that. And I, I started looking around, started snooping. And uh, uh, and I found this book. I mean, it's sitting right there. It didn't have to snoop around. It was sitting right there. And it was marked up. I mean, this thing was tattered. It was, it, you could tell he had worn this thing out. And the way it was marked up and highlighted and underlined and stuff like that, I realized this is the book he's talking about reading on healing every night. So I took it on myself to order one. I mean, it was, it took all the money I had. It's a $15 book at that time. And man, I didn't have 15 bucks, but I scraped up some money and got a hold of one of these books. And man, I was so proud to have this. And I started reading through this thing and it's at least, oh, I don't know. It's probably 4,000 pages total. And I started working through this thing and working through this thing and working through this thing. Finally labored 
over about a year and a half labored to get through there. And there were certain things that, that got my attention and certain things that I remember saying, wow, look at that story and stuff like that. But it was, it was, um, it was a work of the flesh to work through that book. But the Lord really put on my heart not too long ago. Well, like I said, maybe six or eight months ago to, to pick that book up again. And I did. And I started going through it. And man, I'm thinking, why did I not see this 30 years ago? Because now the stuff that it's talking about, I mean, it hits me right in the heart. Brother Hagin used to talk about Wigglesworth. People ask, have you ever heard of a man named Wigglesworth? They'd say, I don't get anything from his writings. I, I just don't understand. Brother Hagin said, oh, I, I get a lot from it. He speaks my language. Well, now he speaks my language too. I'd like to say that it would have been the same thing 30 years ago when I was in Bible school, but it wasn't. But now I'm working through this thing, and Wigglesworth just makes the simplest statements that just jump off the page at me, and it's kind of like, wow. And one of the things that he said, one of the things that he lives by, he said it over and over and over again. I have no idea why I didn't get it the first time. But one of the things that he says over and over and over again, and he used to preach it, it wasn't just in sermons or, you know, things that he'd write down. He just preaches out to everybody talking about healing. He'd talk about the hard cases. He'd take people in wheelchairs and he'd say, now look, everybody look at this person in the wheelchair. You don't think God's not going to hear us when we pray tonight, do you? He'd say things like, you don't think there's any way for God to say no when we minister healing to him, do you? Like God could ever say no. That was a theme of his. Like God could ever say no. And man, that jumped off the page and hit me. And I thought, well, I don't think like that. I can see from him that I should. But I don't think like that. I don't think in terms of God can't ever say no. I always think in terms of if I line my case out with the word just right, then I'll get a yes answer. But he operated just the other way around. He operated from the standpoint that the only thing I know is the word. The only thing I can pray is the word. So there's no way for God to say no. And man, he got results. He'd go into meetings. He said, in, uh, they told a story in one place where there was a guy that was uh, wheeled in after the meeting had started. And everybody's head turned and looked at this guy coming up this long hall. They were in a, some kind of convention center type thing, you know, big meeting hall. And he was coming up the side and everybody's watching. He's got a wheelchair. And you can tell that this person in the wheelchair, it's a tough, tough case. Now, a lot of people knew who this guy was because they were from that town and so forth. Wigglesworth didn't. He could just see the effect that it had on everybody. It was just like there was a, a black cloud that settled in on everybody. So Wigglesworth made him the focus of the sermon. Rather than shine away and, you know, dealing with somebody that had a headache, he made him the focus of the sermon. He started off and he said, now I see that everybody's looking at this fellow over here. Everybody says, yeah. He said, it looks like a hard case, doesn't it? Everybody goes, yeah. How many of you know this man? Most of the crowd raises their hands. How many of you know whether or not he's been prayed for before? And everybody raises their hands, all this kind of stuff. It's one of those hard cases, one of those hard cases. Like God has hard cases. Well, all of a sudden, this guy, it wasn't voluntary. There was something having to do with his condition. He started making noises. And every time Wigglesworth started to preach, and every time this guy would make a noise, everybody's head would turn to look over there. He wasn't trying to disrupt the service. He, he didn't have any control of it. It was just part of the condition he had, whatever it was. 
Somebody would cry out, you know, make this noise, and everybody's head would swing over there. Finally, Wigglesworth said, all right, I've had enough of this. He's going to heal this guy on his faith. He doesn't know who this guy is. He doesn't know what this guy believes. He just says, I've had enough of this. He said, now I'm going to give you a choice. He said, here's the choice. We can let this guy suffer, and I can continue to preach. His making noise doesn't bother me. I'll just keep going. And that way you can be blessed by hearing the message, or we can just stop and minister to this guy right now and get him healed. Which is it going to be? Challenge the crowd. Which is it going to be? Everybody starts saying, heal him, heal him, heal him. Kind of ducking their head. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, go ahead, heal him. So he comes down off the platform, you know, big old high thing. He comes down off the platform, gets the guy healed. Now the guy really starts making noise. Because he's running around the room well. And then he comes back up onto the platform and he said, now! Screams at the people. Just screams at them. Who thought God would say no to that? Well, nobody would dare raise their hand. And then he called them all a bunch of liars. He said, nearly everybody in this crowd thought God would say no. He said, how could God possibly say no? Syrophoenician woman knew that Jesus can't say no. Did you find John 15 yet? Well, if you didn't, just give up. Look on with your neighbor. Notice what Jesus said in verse 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, folks, I would submit to you that abide means relationship. Abiding in Jesus, the only way you can abide in him is to be saved. Now, he doesn't just stop there. He said, if you abide in me, in other words, if you're saved, if you're a child of God, and the second criteria is if the word abides in you. In other words, if the word of God has the same relationship with you as you have with him, Jesus. We could stop there and step on people's toes for a while, couldn't we? How important, if you need something from God, how important do you want to be to Him? Man, I want my needs to be first and foremost on His mind. Don't you? If I need healing my body, then I want Jesus to care a lot about it. Right? What place does His Word have in my life? See, God wants the Word to mean as much to you as you want your needs to mean to Him. Now, I don't mean this to bring condemnation to anybody because I assume that you meet this criteria. I know I do. And so let's just assume that we all meet this criteria. If you abide in me, Jesus is talking. He said, if you abide in me, that means saved. That means relationship with God through Jesus. And my word abides in you. You shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my, notice verse 8. Herein, in this manner, is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, what kind of fruit is he talking about? He's talking about you getting the answers to your prayers. He's talking about your desires coming to pass. I want you to notice, God is glorified when you get your prayers answered. 
So how can God ever say no? There's only one possibility, and that is if we're asking something that's contrary to the word. That's the only possibility. Now, folks, let me point something out. I know this is obvious, or it should, well, I think it's obvious. Maybe it's not. But let me point out to what something that I think is very obvious here. Whether or not your prayers are based on the word is your responsibility, not God's. In other words, if you're asking something that, the, that goes beyond the word, you can fix that. Which means you, through taking action, can ensure that your prayers always get answered. Because from God's end, it's always yes. Just bring me the word. The answer is yes. Just bring me the word. The answer is yes. Just bring me the word. And the answer is yes. That's all you got to do. You're already saved, aren't you? You don't have to worry about the abiding in him stuff. That's relationship. That's salvation. Now, we hope that's a close fellowship that you're walking with him too, but he didn't even make that the criteria. He just said, if you abide in me, that's fellow. I mean, that's relationship. That's salvation. So Jesus is very simply saying, for my children, bring me the word, and the answer is always yes. And God likes it that way. God is glorified when you get answers to your prayers. Now, most people talk about bringing forth fruit in their lives, talking about doing good works and stuff like this. And that's great. We're supposed to do good works. But Jesus is talking about fruit in the context of getting your prayers answered. Now, folks, if this is true, if this is true, and it is, but if this is true, why do Christians go through life without getting their prayers answered? Why do they not fix the problem? And the only problem that could possibly exist is praying against or contrary to the word of God or beyond God's word. Why don't we fix that? If we know what the, if we, if we know that this is the principle that always works and it does, then why don't we take upon ourselves to know what we're praying for and know what the Bible says about what we want and what we desire and make sure that our prayers are based on his word so that we get what we want? Every poll you can find where people do among Christians. Have you, how many of you believe in God? Well, so many percentage, you know, say they believe in God. How many of you pray? And a certain percentage will say, yeah, we pray. How many of you have ever had a prayer answered by God? That percentage drops like a rock. It winds up being about 20% of people say, yeah, I've had a prayer answered. Okay, well, if 70% of the people that say they're Christians pray and only 20% are getting answered, what are the other 50% doing? Why do they keep doing something that doesn't work? Or why don't they find out, take the time to find out how to make it work? That baffles me. See, folks, this is not a game for me. I'm not going to give my life to something that's not true. If this word is not true, if I find out this word is not true, I quit tomorrow. I'm not going to keep going for some salary I make from the church or for what, any other reason. I do this because I know it to be true. By the way, don't worry, I'm not concerned about having to quit. I know it's true today and it'll always be true. But that's just the way I am. I'm not going to keep up with something that's not, that's not real. 
if this is all playing games, if church is all about playing games and just, you know, doing social stuff and stuff like that, forget it. I'm out. I'm in this for one reason and one reason only, and that is because the Word of God is true. And Jesus is saying the answer can't be no if you've got the Word of God. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 5. I'll close with this one. 1 John chapter 5. Notice what John said. Ah, let's just start in verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. In other words, Christians. I'm writing this to Christians, believers. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, that you know what you have. He didn't say that you'd have it, because if you believe in Jesus, you already have it. But that you'd know what you have. And that you might believe on the name. Of the Son of God. Now, wait a minute. Hold on a second. He just said, I'm writing this to people that believe in the name of the Son of God. Now he's saying, I'm writing this for two reasons, that you know that you have eternal life, number one, and that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. What does he mean? Well, he's talking about the difference in believing on the name to be saved in the first uh, instance, as opposed to believing on the power in the name of God in the second instance. See, you can believe on the name of, uh, name of the Son of God and be saved and never Use the name of Jesus for anything worthwhile in your life. But what he's saying is, I'm sending this letter, I'm writing this letter to those of you that are are saved by believing on the name of Jesus for two reasons, that you may know you have eternal life and what that life involves, and second, that you might believe on and use the name of Jesus. Now, how does he want you to use the name of Jesus? Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, folks, I would submit to you that even though John writes this many, many years later, this is exactly what the Syrophoenician woman did in Mark chapter 7. She knew if she could just get in front of Jesus, if she could just get Jesus to hear her, she could get what she wanted. She knew he wouldn't say no. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, didn't you see in verse 14, if we ask anything according to his will. And you just never know what the will of God is. Well, sure you do. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't come to the earth to reveal the Father to us. And then the Holy Ghost didn't inspire the writers of the New Testament to give us a great big book so that we wouldn't know what the will of God was. Everything in His Word is His will. You could interchange the word word, meaning the Word of God, for the word will and be absolutely accurate. And if we know that he hears us, if we ask anything, this is confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his word, then we know he hears us. And if we know he hears us, folks, I want you to understand, using the word is the key to Jesus hearing you. And if we know that we hear that he hears us, we know we have the petitions that we've desired. We know we get what we ask for. In other words, when your prayer is based on the word, it's impossible for God to say no. It's impossible 
for God to say no. It is impossible for God to say no. Please understand what I'm saying. There is a greater chance for the world to end at this very moment than for God to say no. Because heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never fail. It's impossible for God to say no. You've been saved by the Jesus that can't say no. I have no idea how the Syrophoenician woman knew this, but she was ahead of her time. For this saying, go your way. Your, the, daughter, the devil has gone out of your daughter. Your Lord and Savior is the Jesus that can't say no. All it takes is the simplicity of bringing him his word. Well, this is healing school, so what does the word say about healing? Well, luckily, he's got that covered. The Bible says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, that's physical provision, finances and so forth, was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. New Testament says it the same way, only it changes the tense. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.24, says, by his stripes you were healed. Isaiah is looking forward to what Jesus will do. Peter's looking backwards to what Jesus did do and has already done. If we bring those healing scriptures to the Father, we've got two witnesses, John 15 and 1 John 5. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, and we could give you a lot more than just two. We just gave you two for the sake of time. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That means... If the Bible is true, if God told us the truth, and he did, thank God he did, then we could take those scriptures, Isaiah 53, 5, and or 1 Peter 2, 24, directly to the Father, and it's impossible for him to say no. And not that he wants to. It's not like he's trapped. Oh, shoot. I didn't want to heal these people, but they found out that healing scriptures are in there. No, the Bible says God is glorified when we bear much fruit. God is glorified when we get the healing that we seek him for based on his word. Because we abide in him and his word abides in us. We ask what we will and it shall be done unto us. And that's what glorifies God. You need to realize that your healing glorifies God. You need to realize that God is glorified when you receive the healing that you seek. He's not glorified in the midst of your sickness. He's glorified when you get your healing. It's impossible for God to say no. It's impossible for God to say no. Boy, I hope this is sinking in. Because it is so absolutely true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you that Jesus took upon himself the payment for sin and sickness. Thank you, Father, that with his stripes we were healed. Father, you are our heavenly Father. Jesus lives in our heart. Therefore, we abide in you. 
And because his, your word abides in us. We declare, Father, that we desire healing for our physical bodies. Jesus said, if we abide in you and you abide, and your word abides in us, we will ask what we will. In our case, it's healing. And it shall be done unto us. Healing is ours, therefore. Father, your word also says that you're glorified when we receive the answers to our prayers. We know we're asking according to your will because it's what Jesus has already accomplished. So therefore, this is the confidence that we have in you, Father, that if we ask anything according to your will, according to your word, and we do, we know that you hear us. And since we know that you hear us, we know, we don't hope, we're not taking a chance, we know that we have what we've asked you for. We know that we receive the healing that we desire. Therefore, Father, by faith we declare that we are healed in Jesus' name. By faith we declare that we glorify you through physical healing for our bodies. Thank you, Father, for bringing it to pass because you hear and answer us. Thank you, Father, that it's impossible for you to say no to us because we stand upon your word. In Jesus' name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.